Amen. Thank you, James. I'll tell you, if it wasn't a difficult enough preaching in front of your pastor, I have a new PhD now. So this is just, I, I feel a little devastated here myself. So um, I need some help before I start. Lenny, come up here, would you? Oh, come on. It's not bad. And James, I'm going to ask you to help him real quick. So um, I need you to hold this. Turn around, face the audience, please. Thank you. And I'm going to give you this. Right now, what I want you to do, it's, it's just a, a tube. <laughs> Both of them, I think. No, it's just a tube of toothpaste. Hopefully. So it's a tube of toothpaste. And what I want you to do is I want you to grab that tube and I want you to squeeze it into this bowl. But let me move out of the way first. <laughs> It's just toothpaste. There's nothing in there, I promise you. But you did a good job. That's good. Give them a hand for doing a great job. The reason I wanted to show you that is it's toothpaste. When you squeeze it, what's inside is going to come out. And that's what our sermon is about today. It's called Squeezed. You know, we have a lot of pressure on us in many different ways. A lot of us are going through these types that were squeezed very regularly. It comes on a daily ba- daily basis. It's, the, it's called the pressures of life that we have. And it could be a various amount of things. It could be the pressures of school. It could be the pressures of what you're going to do after school. It could be the pressures of deadlines, the pressures of finances, the pressures of what others expect out of us. The pressures of what we expect out of us. It might be the pressures of being married, having a new baby. It might be the pressures of not finding someone yet to be married to. And it might be the pressures that you have because you're wanting to have children. It might be the pressures of looking ahead and saying, what am I going to do with my life? And then for those of us who are a little bit older, it could be the pressures of looking back and saying, what have I done with my life? Pressure is everywhere, and there's no way to wrap our hearts. It wraps around us, and it feels like it's going to explode. But pressure doesn't squeeze the life out of us. Pressure squeezes the junk out of us. All of the junk that's in our heart has a way of coming out when we're squeezed, when that pressure comes. All of our anxieties and fears and impatience and frustration and laziness and jealousy, selfishness and anger, and the list goes on. Pressure doesn't put that stuff in our hearts, but it can squeeze it out of us. And in our passage this morning, we saw that Jesus had a deal with pressure. He had a deal with being squeezed. So let's look at what he did when Jesus was squeezed. There are three specific things and he was uh, squeezed in three specific ways or he was tempted in three specific ways. The first way is physically. It says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Christ answers him with the word. He says, people do not live by bread alone, but by every mouth, every word that comes out of the mouth of God. 
Now, I was reading through the commentary about this and about the wilderness that they said where this happened. It lies between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. Barclay says the Old Testament calls it the devastation. It's an area of yellow sand and crumbling limestone. It's got ragged ridges. It's just sandy as hills. It's just dust heap. And it just traps the heat inside like a fiery furnace. And what Barclay says is he says, a less inviting place is hard to imagine. And then I started laughing because I said, well, not for us. We've been to West Texas. We've seen that kind of area. Or for our friend Kyle, who used to play drums and bass, he's in Pampa. So he's realizing it this morning of what that place looks like, the place of devastation, of barrenness. So Christ was hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus knew, Satan knew that he was weak. And this is the very first place that Satan is going to tempt you, is going to be physically. This is the first place he's going to squeeze you. Satan wants an easy fight because he knows he can't win a fair fight. So what he's going to do is he's going to come at you and make troubles with your marriage. Guys... He's going to have you working at about the time that you're having a problem with your wife. A really nice, cute young person is going to come work with you. And he's going to tempt you with that person who thinks you're so funny and thinks you're just wonderful. And women, he's going to do the same thing with you. He's going to make you fall out of love. Satan is going to make you fall out of love and try to do that with your husband. He's going to tempt you in your marriage. It might be he's going to tempt you with your finances. I don't know where everybody is today, but I know there are some people in this congregation that I've spoken to that aren't working right now, that they're having a hard time finding a job, and that things are getting a little bit tight. And Satan's going to tempt you with those finances in your life. He's going to make things difficult for you. And he's going to try to make you kind of give God the brush aside. And say, you know, things are really tight at home, Lord. I know that you understand if I don't give to you right now. He's going to tempt you in your finances. He's going to tempt you at work. He's going to give you trouble at work. He's going to give you a boss that you don't get along with and is really going to press you. He's going to give you co-workers that may gossip. He's going to find your weakest spot to tempt you physically, to squeeze you physically. But what did Jesus do in this? He went to the Word. He went to the Word. But Christ answered him and said, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I have a gentleman I know. His name's Doug Beebe. He's uh, the director of student life, the dean of student life at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. Now, by the way, if you have to work at a college, 
Santa Barbara, California is kind of a good place to have to do it. And he had students that came up to him and they said to him, and I remember this, I don't know if you do, James, from when you were in Bible school, but we always wanted someone discipleship. I wanted to be discipled. We wanted to be discipled. And so we'd come to someone. It's become quite an industry today. And so he had four students who came to him at this college as he was the dean of students. So they said, you know, Doug, would you mind discipling us? And he said, here's what I want you to do. He goes, absolutely. He goes, but what I want you to do is I want you guys to all go away and read the book of Matthew. Go read the book of Matthew and then come back to me in a week. So they did. They read the book of Matthew, came back. Then after that, he said, you know, now I want you to go read the book of Mark. And they all went away and read the book of Mark. And then they came back and he goes, that's great. Now uh, go read Luke. They went away and read Luke. And they came back. He goes, man, you guys are doing great. Now go read John. And they went, read John and came back. And said, so now what do we do? You know, we've read all. He goes, I want you to read all four of them this week and come back to me. And so they read all four and they came back to him. And finally they got really frustrated. And they said, look, we've been coming to you to get discipled. And he said, and all you've had us doing is go read the Gospels. And he goes, exactly. Exactly. Let Jesus disciple you. Let Jesus be your source. Let him tell you, you don't need to hear from me. You need to hear from the Bible. For Second Timothy tells us that every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, and correcting our mistakes. Now let me ask you, how many of you here, does anybody here have a red-letter Bible? Do you guys remember that? Who has a red letter? Do, does someone have one? Red-letter Bible. So... I heard this a couple of weeks ago and a pastor preached and I got to tell you, I just took it straight from him because I thought it was amazing. But he talked about, and those were times where Jesus spoke directly to people. He spoke directly to disciples and the red letters, if you look at it, it's Jesus's words. But the interesting part is in Acts chapter 9, there's also red letters. But this was after the ascension. Jesus still was speaking to my namesake, Saul, as he became Paul. He still speaks to us today. But we get so caught up in trying to find different ways. What I'm going to tell you this morning is if you want to find out how to defeat the enemy, and how to go. Make your life a red-letter life. Let him speak directly into you. Those red letters aren't just for the, for the New Testament part, but they're still here today. He still speaks to you. He can still speak to you, but the problem is, is we don't take the time to listen to him. Let's look at the second way that Jesus was tempted or that he was squeezed spiritually. It says, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and they'll hold you up with your hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus again answers Satan with the word. He says, you must not, must not test the Lord your God. I thought this was interesting. Jesus answered him with the word. But what did Satan tempt him with? 
the word. He said, if you're the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, this really got to me. He knows the word. Satan knows the word and will use it against us. So it's strong for us to be, it's important for us to be strong spiritually. We have to realize that the enemy knows the scripture and realizes the seriousness of the battle. And it's our responsibility to know the word. What are we doing here? The battle is not of this world. Romans tells us to not conform to this world. You know, we have a lot of things that are happening today through whether it be through social media or whatever is happening that we're fighting about. Whether it be transgender bathrooms, whether it be gay marriage, whether it be sandblasting the Ten Commandments off of monuments. There's a lot of things that are happening and we're spending our time getting mad at others and not showing them the love of Christ as opposed to doing what we're called to do. We're not called to go and change people. We're not called to even go and save people. We're called to go and share. We're called to go and share the scripture. We're called to go and tell people about his love. I heard someone say the other, last week that Christians are shouting answers to questions that no one is asking. But I'll tell you what, in my work, I can tell you the questions. People are asking for clarity in their lives. They're not asking us about, they already know where we stand about transgender bathrooms and everything else. But you know what they don't know what to do? And the questions that people are asking, those friends of ours are asking? They're asking us, how do I save my marriage? How do I help my son who's on drugs? How do I become a better parent? How do I not commit adultery? How do I care for my family? How do I help my child? grow up into a godly person. Those are the questions they're asking. Where I work, we have a site called doesgod.com. And what we did is we checked out the top 10 questions that people ask on Google. Over a billion questions about does God happen every day. Every day, a billion people are trending on does God on, on, uh, on the Internet. And they're asking questions, but they're not asking the questions that we think they're asking. They're asking those questions that I just spoke to you about. Does God forgive? Does God care about me? Does God? Let's start answering them in the correct way. Um, this came screaming to me about 12 years ago when my life changed. Um, I get to go to, and James, I don't know if you've ever been to the uh, Glo Willow Creek Global Leadership Conference. It's a great conference. Bill Hybels uh, has it every year from Willow Creek, and they have satellite all around. I think it's coming up in August or September, and if you're interested, uh, I'll find out for you where it's going to be. I know I'll be going. And I went to one of the um, 
one of the sessions, and Heibel shared the story. Because he has this large leadership conference, there's, he gets asked to speak at a lot of conferences and a lot of leadership conferences that aren't necessarily uh, faith-based. So he shared about one that he was in. I think it was in Washington, D.C., and he's standing backstage. So I want you to imagine that this is the stage and they're introducing the speakers. And if you've ever spoke at one of these or, or been to one, all the speakers kind of stand backstage behind the curtain and then they announce you one at a time and you walk out and wave and find your chair and you sit down. So he was backstage and he was standing next to the former uh, Secretary of Defense. And the Secretary of Defense starts giving him a really hard time. He starts saying, Hyvels, you don't know anything about this leadership stuff. You don't know what it is to really be a leader. Because you know what? If I make a mistake, men's lives are at stake. And Hybels, without missing a beat, said, Oh, if it was only men's lives. If I make a mistake, it's men's souls. And that hit me. That hit me hard. Do I really care when I go out to lunch today about the person who's serving me and that they are going to have an eternity without Jesus? Do I really care? I have family members. I have a little brother who's an atheist. Do I really care enough to share Jesus with him? Do I really, really care? Do we care as a church? Are we bringing people in here to hear James? Not me, hear James. <laughs> when, when he's here and hear him give that word out and give that invitation every week, do we bring people in so they can be here to hear the word of God? Do we really care? Aren't we just happy because we came here and we have a nice place and some decent music and great preaching? Is that what we care about or do we care Really, has, has a seriousness come that it's not just men's lives that are at stake, but it's men's souls. And it's so simple. It's so simple when we think of that. If you're here today and you're being tempted, squeezed spiritually, your life is not where it needs to be. You haven't shared Jesus in years. Forget months, forget days, forget weeks. You haven't shared Jesus in years. Today might be the time that you need to come forward when James has a time for us to do that and come to the altar and pray and go, God, I've just been playing a game. I have just been playing around with this. Are men's souls important to me? Does that mean everything to me? The third way that Jesus was squeezed is egotistically. By the way, this is one, as you can imagine that, uh, I'll spend a little time on because I have a problem here. I'm sure I'm the only one, but uh, this is where I have a problem. It says, I will give it all to you, he said, if you'll just kneel down and worship me. Jesus tells Satan to get out of here and then again answers with Scripture, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. I think this is kind of interesting because Satan was offering him everything. 
And I thought it was, as I really prayed about this week, and Chuck, I'll need you to tell me if I'm even close on this, okay? But this is what was revealed to me, so take me aside afterwards, all right, and share. Um, As I looked at this, I thought it was kind of funny because Satan's saying, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And if I was kind of Jesus at that point, I would have gone, dude, I own it. It's mine already. I I don't need your help with it. But then I really started thinking about it. And I think what this kingdoms is, is not what Jesus owns. Because it's people who have turned from him and have created their own gods out of wealth and things in their life. The kingdoms of the world is what people have built up, not what God has built up. It's those things that make us turn away from God. And he says he'll give it all to you. And I thought this was also interesting that Jesus, honestly, at the very beginning, he could have started out his ministry strong and could have started out the top of the world, but yet he's here being tempted in this way. And that struck me in the fact because Jesus didn't have instant gratification. He didn't take the shortcut to his kingdom. He took the hard road. He took the road that led to the cross. He didn't take the easy road. And you know, we are an instant society, if nothing else. I got to tell you, I get a little worried when my microwave doesn't heat up the popcorn quick enough. I mean, I want it now. And if you watch late night television, I'll tell you what, I could be... Well, first of all, I could be really trim and well-built because I can do that with a 20-minute trainer. If I just do it for 20 minutes, late-night TV tells me that. I could cook a turkey in about four minutes. There's a lot of things that you can have instant gratification in. I could actually, for me, the most important one, I see some other of you share this with me. I could have hair right now. Instant gratification is what we're looking for. We're all looking for that type of just everything coming to us at once. But life is hard. Life is hard. Billy Graham put it this way. Put this quote up. He said, God never promised you happiness, but he did promise a life of service and dedication with bits of joy throughout. I love this quote. Let me tell you, I come back to this quote a lot in my life. God never promised you happiness. You know why? Happiness breaks down, and actually its origin comes from the word happenings. Happenings. Your your emotion is tied to an event that happens. I can tell you, when I get chicken and dumplings, that's happiness. Banana pudding, happiness. The Cubs win a pennant. Really happiness for me. It'd be good. But God said, and Dr. Graham, when he was talking about this, said, he never promised you happiness because that's not for the eternal. And it's something that's dependent on outside areas. But joy, joy comes from within. Joy comes from something that only Jesus can put in your heart. When you worry about happiness, you're tied to things going the correct way. 
I want to share this last story with you. Um, so, Evan, go ahead and put up the slide. So, you see this place right here? This is the Manalani Beach Club in Hawaii. Julianne and I had the pleasure of living in Hawaii for almost a year and a half. And every Saturday was spent on this beach. It was a great gig, by the way. It was this night. Uh, and it was spent. And so before we went here, it was interesting. So let me share just a little bit about this with you. This hospital that I went to on the Big Island was kind of a boutique hospital. Uh, it was on the Big Island of Hawaii. They had another one down in Kona, but this was up in Waimea. And so we thought we were going to this paradise and this hospital, and it had the biggest name donors. So not to name drop for you, but let me just give you a couple of them. Paul Allen, who you guys will remember. Gordon Moore, the founder of Intel. You've seen him. Um, Herb Freischlag, who was the uh, owner of the Boston Celtics. These were my donors there. And then uh, uh, the Dells, Michael and uh, Susan Dell, who were from here. Of course, we know who they are. These were my donors. And my job was to not only raise money for the hospital, but if anything happened to them, Susan's a big jogger. And when she turned her ankle and really thought it was broken, my job was to meet them at the hospital and kind of act as their concierge. And they had a special room and they'd wait to go to the emergency room. I thought this was going to be great. All this was explained to me. So we got to paradise. We got there. And about two weeks after I got there, by the time I was there, through my entire year and two months, I had five different CEOs. Five different CEOs. Two of them permanent. One guy was fired after six weeks. The Hawaiians literally, not figuratively, literally ran him off the island. They picked him up in a car, brought him to the airport and said, hey, bro, don't let it hit you on the way out. And they got him off the island. My largest donor, and this is all um, uh, public knowledge so I can share it. My largest donor was a gentleman named Dr. Earl Bakken. Uh, you guys might know of him. He was the inventor of the wearable pacemaker and the founder of Medtronic. And he gave $18 million to start the hospital. And Earl, in the midst of all this turmoil, gave an interview which was covered. You can still see it online if you look at it. And it says, Dr. Bakken leaves the hospital. He decided he was done with it. My largest donor. Paradise, right? So I'm getting interviews because of his stature at all hours of the days and nights. I mean, since we're in Hawaii, we're already five hours earlier, right? So we're behind. So I'm not only getting East Coast news departments, but then the Hawaiian ones. So it literally is about 18 to 20-hour days easily when I'm there. And that goes on for about seven or eight months. And then one night in the middle of all this, I came home and go ahead, Evan, and I saw this movie on TV, Chariots of Fire. I came home at midnight, and it was starting at about 1 o'clock in the morning. Julianne and I talked for a second. She went up, and obviously I was still awake, and I couldn't do anything. I don't know. How many of you have ever seen this? I know it's some of us. 
It's a great movie. Uh, it's about uh, the, I think it's the 1924 Paris Olympics. And the whole story is about a gentleman named Eric Liddell, who's the Flying Scotsman. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about this. He trained for the 100-meter race. He was brilliant in the 100-meter race. He was beating everybody. They called him the Flying Scotsman. This was a guy who was just tremendous, and he was a follower number one of God. God meant everything to him. In fact, he says, I can feel his spirit with me as I run. So he's trained for this time, and he gets to the Paris Olympics, and he finds out that his heats for the 100 meter are going to be run on Sunday. And he says to the head of the Olympic Committee, I can't do that. I can't run. I can't run on the Sabbath. Guy was favored to win the 100 meters. I can't run on the Sabbath. So they make some arrangements, and he's able to run instead the 400-meter race. And they said, well, we'll just have you run the 400 meters. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever run before, I ran a little bit when I was in junior high and high school. The 100 meter and the 400 meter are completely different races. The 100 meter, if you've even seen it on TV at all, it's fast and quick. Guys are running it almost under nine now, but they're at, at nine seconds. The 400 meter is a long race. It's all the way around the track. You don't train the same way. And yet Eric Liddell, they said he could run this. And so he ran the race, and he ended up winning the Olympic medal for the 400 meters at the 1924 Paris Olympics. Now, this is why this was important to me as I sat there with my ego, thinking that I'm going to paradise, and I'm going to just have a tremendous time, sit on the beach, enjoy time with my wife, and we're going to end up there. Eric Liddell thought he was going to be training and he was, thought he was going to be doing one thing. But God had a different plan. And God said, you're not going to do that, but you're going to do this other thing. And you know why? You're going to do it so I can get all the glory. Because if you do the 100 meter, you're doing what's expected. But if you win the 400 meter, that's all me. And as I watched that movie that night, and at 2.30 in the morning, I started crying and I had this time with God. And he shared with me and he goes, Paul, that's just what I've done for you. I've done the same thing for you. You thought you were going to be running a certain race, that you're going to have all these great donors and everything was going to be easy and you're going to walk in the door. But he goes, uh-uh. You can take credit for that, you big ego guy. I'm going to change the race. You're going to run a different race. And it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. But you know what? I'm going to be there with you. And when it's done, you're going to be able to give me all the glory. And that's what happened in that situation. God pulled my ego out of the way. The hospital got settled. We brought in the final CEO. The Hawaiians loved him. And everything got settled in. And Julianne and I, after that was done, we got to leave them. We got to finish up the last $22 million of this campaign that they had become stalled on. And we got to do that, and we got to leave. And God blessed that hospital. And we still go back there 
We were going back yearly for about the past six years, five years or six years. Uh, we're looking at going back in the next month. And every time I go there, I get to preach at Mana Christian Ohana, which is a church there that that pastor sat with me after this revelation. And the next morning we went, Hawaiian guy, his name's Kahu Billy Mitchell. They call him Kahu because that means shepherd in Hawaiian. And we walked around the entire hospital, he and I, and prayed for that hospital, for God to bless it and for God to bring it back to its glory. But God pulled my ego out of the way and and did that. God flipped the script, if you would, on what I had planned, and he said, here's what I have for you, Paul. So what was the secret weapon for all of these, for Jesus? Well, it was the Word. The Word, Jesus kept going back to Deuteronomy and kept quoting the Scriptures. And this is a pretty easy equation for us to think of. When we look at it, we always worry about how can I have more faith? How can I have faith for when I'm being squeezed to get through this? And here's this simple equation. Faith equal hearing and hearing equal the Word of God. It comes down to His Word. But I'd like to even take this one step further for you. Because the Bible tells us in John that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So I'd even go further and say faith equal hearing equal the Word of God equal Jesus. So I know that you had one of my mentors preach last week, and I know he shared one thing with you, and it was this. And I'll say to you that Jesus is still the answer Now, what was your question? Jesus is the answer, his word and what he has for us. So what I'd ask you guys at the end is, how are you being squeezed? James is going to come up here in a moment, and I'm going to ask him to come forward. And how are you being squeezed? Are you being, do you need prayer this morning for physical problems? Are you having problems with money or with kids, with marriage or job? Is there something physically happening in your life that you need prayer for? Do you need prayer for spiritual problems in your life? Are you need to get closer to God? Do you need to start a time of devotion or is your devotion time not as strong as it used to be? Or maybe there's some of you here that spiritually you just don't know him. You don't know him. You're going, Paul, I, I don't even think about it that way. And you just don't know him. Or finally, is it your ego? Is it hard for you to put... God on the throne, and that you need to be rescued by him right now. Whatever it is this morning, James is going to be down here. I would ask you to come. If anything's touched you in this, any of these three ways that you're being squeezed, come forward. Pray about it with him. Pray about it with one of your friends. Let's make this a place where when we're squeezed and we're under that pressure that God can speak to us. Let's stand together and James, would you lead us in prayer?